So we are entering into a time where we are going to be having a three-week fast as a congregation. Every year we've done this for the last four or five years, maybe the last four years. And uh, fasting is something that Jesus expects us to, to continue to do. In Matthew 6, he said, when you fast, and gave some instructions on how you are to fast. The early church fasted probably once a week or several times a month. You know, it's something that is very common to the life of the church, but has uh, disappeared in some ways in, in, um, in different parts of the history of the church. Uh, it's something that we want to take hold of, though, because it's biblical and because uh, it's, it's, it's a great time in the new year to seek God afresh for his new wine, for what he wants to do in our lives, seek him for softened hearts, seek him for just his voice to us and what he's saying to us. So we're going to be fasting. So I wanted to, I wanted to choose a passage that had uh, talked about fasting in it. Um, and in particular, God, God did put this picture of new wine, new wineskins in my, in my heart, which is from, uh, from Luke. So we'll, we'll get there. But uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in Boston Spa refilling my CO2 canisters at this, uh, this propane shop. My dealer, my propane dealer, I guess. Uh, I said CO2, though, see my, my gas that I had for my um, seltzer-making machine. And uh, while they were I had several of these canisters, so while they were filling these up, I said, I'll go across the street to this antique shop I've never been to before. And I was also trying to find little gifts for my wife. Didn't find anything there. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but uh, I was, first of all, when I walked into this antique shop, impressed by, it's a cool place. It's a huge antique store in Boston Spa. Like, top and bottom floor, the whole building is pretty much antiques and lit everything you can imagine. But the coolest thing was I walked in and there was a Model T. Like it was so cool just sitting in the shop. I have no idea how it got in there. I have no idea anything about it, but it's not for sale. I didn't check on that. But I thought, what a cool, th what a cool piece of history. The Model T, this is the 1907 Ford Motor Company's affordable vehicle for everyday use. There were other motor vehicles in production at that time, but they were only for the rich and the really elite people. So the Ford Motor Company said, let's make a vehicle, a motor vehicle that is accessible to all people. And the, the Model T was in production for almost 20 years. Uh, but, but seeing that was a really cool thing. And it got me to imagine this, this crazy thought, you know. It's 1907. This is a hypothetical story. For over 150 years, your family has been in the business of building horse-drawn carriages. And you are the best at it. You've got it down to a science. They're technically beautiful. They have uh, really awesome wheels and shock absorption. Everyone buys your... your horse-drawn carriage from you. And then it happens. You start hearing about these motor vehicles that are being developed. But you say to yourself, no, they're only for really rich people. They're not, the poor people are going to be buying these carriages still. But no, within 10 years, people are not doing the horse-drawn carriage thing anymore. They found these inexpensive vehicles. And all of a sudden, you have two options in life with your family business. You can, be, you can find a new way of making money in the world, even though this is all you've known. Or you can become Amish, which is also, it's a booming industry. If you drive in Amsterdam in the mountains there, the town of Florida, you see a lot, you have to kind of uh, work your way around horse-drawn carriages. But this scenario, this very sad scenario, has played itself out many, many times in human history, especially as technology has progressed very quickly in the last 100 years or so. Uh, you know, think about oil lamp producers. All of a sudden, the light bulb comes along. Now what do we do, right? Um, things remain the same, they're reliable, then everything changes. This is also descriptive in some ways, in many ways, 
of the impact that Jesus had in introducing his kingdom into the world. All of a sudden, people that were living one way, Jesus dropped the kingdom into their lap and taught them new teaching and told them to follow him. But we already know what we're doing, Jesus. We, we, we already have a plan. But no, Jesus said, leave everything and follow me. How radical of a call would that have been back then? For the segment of society that followed Israel, uh, Israel's God in the days of Jesus, there were, there were a few ways of being that people had become very comfortable with. You know, people before, during Jesus' time, had become very comfortable with. You've probably heard about some of these in other sermons or books you've read or the Bible. You know, one way of being before Jesus came was to simply give yourself over to what the, what the Jews would call sin. Um, this is to not really seek God at all, per se, to be uh, to not be monotheistic, to be like everybody else and believe in many, many gods, to be polytheistic, maybe, maybe worshiping these other gods in your culture. And in this category, there would be the, the Romans, who were the overlords of God's people at this time, in, at the time when Jesus came into the world. Um, they, they were inventing religions by the day. They, for, first they made, made Rome into a god, and then they made Caesar into a god. They made lots of stuff into gods. And your whole thing was you either worship the God of Rome, the God of the, the state, or you and renounce your faith in Christ or you die. These are some of the things that happened in the history of the church. But that one way of being when Jesus was around was simply to keep doing what you're doing. Um, prostitutes, hated tax collectors, those people that were considered sinners in society and were looked down on, just keep doing what you're doing. Um, you're not seeking after God. You're just going along until Jesus pops into your life. Mostly these people in this class of people didn't think it would ever be an option for them to ever be a part of the religion of the Jews because they were not Jewish themselves. And so they, they felt hopeless in regard to the God of the Old Testament. And uh, they thought, well, you know, I might as well just live it up and do whatever because God's not an option for me. These people you'll notice in the, in the scriptures, had very little trouble um, converting to Christianity when they came into contact with Jesus or to, being, being won over to the way of Christ. Um, these people had everything to gain and very little to lose. And they were be, being invited to come to sit and eat with the, the Son of God. You know, like Zacchaeus, I uh, you know, it was a dream come true for Zacchaeus. He just wanted to see a glimpse of Jesus from the sycamore tree. And Jesus said, come down, I'm going to your house tonight. That's a, that's a dream come true for someone that was hopeless and unable to access God. That was one way of being that, that was available when Jesus came into the world. Another way of being was to be a God-fearer. And these people could be, they could be Roman citizens, they could be other Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who trusted in Israel's God, who respected Israel's God, while they went about their lives. So God-fearers, they, they may pray, they may fast, they may offer gifts to God. Um, most importantly, they, they actually had real faith in Israel's God and his supremacy and his power. Um, the Roman centurion in the New Testament is a good example of this. Uh, many, many of these people, when they were confronted by Jesus or one of his followers, they came to Christ easily as well because they had... They had resigned themselves to this idea that I can just be a God-fearer. I'll never be a part of the full-fledged people of God. So when these God-fearers heard the message that they could be included in the people of God, many of them jumped at the chance. 
since it was only a question of, of ethnicity or, or people groups that kept them out. Matthew 8.10 says, says something amazing about the Roman centurion's face, the God-fearer. When Jesus heard the Roman centurion talking, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So here's a, a non-Jewish Roman, high-up military person, who Jesus says had more faith than anyone in Jerusalem that he had encountered so far. It's pretty incendiary when you consider that of all the professional religious folks that were listening at the time. But what an amazing thing that, that for God-fearers and for just sinners, these are people that don't have access, or they feel they don't have access, Jesus comes and they're like, wow, I do have access. Yeah, they, these two groups were, were hanging around when Jesus came into the world. Other, other ways of being that, that uh, would have been closer to faith in Jesus, but, but uh, were, were, were more like the, the religious folks from the, from the Jewish community. There was the Pharisaic Jews, and then there was the Sadducee Jews, and then there were the followers of John the Baptist, who were John's disciples. Now, these people already had very strong ideas about how they were to follow God in the world based on the teachings of the scriptures that they had interpreted. And when confronted by Jesus and his teaching about the kingdom, you know, these people uh, seem to have the toughest time converting to Christ. Because, though they should have been the first to recognize who Jesus was as the Messiah, their religion, what they built around their religion, and even John the Baptist's disciples, same, same problem, there was, a strong, there was strong commitments already in place in regard to God. And so they had a hard time many times. The Apostle Paul had a hard time converting to Christ. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was like the most righteous Jew. He was an observer of the law. He was, he was considered very high up in, in, in the Judaism. And he was, a, he was also a Roman citizen. And Paul was, was, during the early church's life, you know, pulling Christians out of their home and killing them, um, persecuting them, until God, until Jesus appeared to Paul on the road he lost his vision, and Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting my body of the church? And through a long process, Paul became a follower of Christ. Uh, before that time, he was, he was a religious guy. He was a Pharisee. And it was hard for him. It would have been very hard for him to say yes to Jesus if it weren't for Jesus' direct intervention in his life. Paul was one of those very observant Jewish people. And so he, his life was radically transformed by an encounter with Jesus. So these, these ways of being were... These, these parts of society were all present when Jesus came into the world. The quote-unquote sinners, pagans, non-Jewish Gentile people, the God-fearers who were non-Jewish but feared Israel's God, um, Sadducees, Pharisees, and John's apostles, um, al along with some others. But this crowd is the context of Jesus' teaching in Luke 5, 27. It says this, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. See, these were the, the folks that didn't have access. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
I just love, I love the stories of Jesus. I love imagining what all those people that were gathered in Levi's house <laughs> were like, wow, the guy, the, the, this amazing Jewish rabbi wants to have a meal with a tax collector and his sinner friends. Yeah, it was, it was all about Jesus giving people access who did not have access. That's something Jesus loved to do. It says right in this passage, Jesus' mission statement, I shared this in the beginning of, I shared this very passage in the beginning of our small group study through Gentle and Lowly. You know, Jesus said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, it's the sick. I've come to call not righteous people, but sinners to repentance. So it made perfect sense that Jesus hung out with these people, laughed and told stories with these people, and offered salvation to these people. Now, when you hear uh, Jesus talking about the healthy who need a doc, the healthy who don't need a doctor, the sick that do, you know, do we believe that Jesus actually, that Jesus actually believed that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were actually the healthy people? Do we believe that? No. Jesus looked around him. He saw all the different parts of society: the sinners, the religious, uh, the, the the people that uh, were hopeless. And he saw around him just a lot of sick people. Whether they be religiously sick or sinfully sick, whatever it might be, he saw the sick. Um, the, the, the Romans had sickness that Jesus needed to heal. The God-fearers were sick. The Gentiles were sick. The Jewish people were sick. All of them, even, even the best of them, were in need of a Savior. He didn't, Jesus did not see categories, in other words, of people when he looked around. Um, clean and unclean, healthy, unhealthy. He just saw people in need of him, in need of a doctor. And he came for those people. You know, we tend to look around the world and categorize people uh, in, in different, different categories based on how they look or what, they, what their commitments are, what they believe, or what their politics are. Jesus looked around and he said, yep, sick people, sick people, sick people, sick people, sick people. And he still does. Uh, because he's the doctor and he wants to heal the sick. That's an amazing thing. Many of us sick people can't really get out of our own way and find Jesus, but Jesus goes and finds us, and he found Zacchaeus and Levi and his friends. Now, this is good news. Jesus' mission was not to come for those who already knew what they were doing and had established themselves fully. His mission was to come as a doctor to save and heal as many people as possible. Uh, in, in our own fellowship at church, you know, we, maybe, maybe we look around and we, we think different things about different people in the church, or about the pastor, about the elders, or whatever, Jesus looks around and he sees again, sick pastor, sick people. He's here for us. He's here to heal us and help us. He's, that's who Jesus is. Um, and it is Jesus' delight. I think we're seeing in our book, Gentle and Lowly, it's his great delight to heal the sick, to save the lost, um, to realize that when, when Jesus' kingdom came, it is, it is a party, it is a banquet for everybody who will put on the white garments and come through Jesus Christ for anybody to come to him, clean, unclean, sick, and healthy. Reading on in Luke 5, 33, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and their sect um, then said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray. So do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, How can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. So the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they changed their tactics a little bit. When Jesus shares that he's called, come to call uh, not righteous, but unrighteous, uh, the sick 
and sinners to repentance. Um, the Pharisees, who have many, many established traditions among them, including fasting and praying, change their ta ta tactics around. And they say, um, aren't you even as righteous as John the Baptist's followers who, who fast? Are you, aren't you even as righteous as us who are fasting? And Jesus' answer in response to this question about fasting is that since he is with his people in person, literally having a feast with a bunch of people right now at this moment when he's making this teaching, there's no point in fasting. You know, after all, the person that you are seeking when you fast is here among you. He is at the table. It's time for the party because God is among you, because God is manifest as your Savior and your healer. Then Jesus says there will come a time when his true followers will resume fasting. That's you and me, right? And Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he lays out his expectation that all of his followers will fast someday. But, but Jesus knows that the time to resume fasting is after his death and resurrection as his people wait for his return. That's the time to fast and seek after God. These are the days that we live in currently as a church, which is one of the reasons why we're fasting in the new year. Uh, it's, it's, it's a way to, until the time when Jesus comes back, we come to the table of the Lord, we fast, we pray, we seek his face uh, during this time with these different disciplines because uh, Jesus is coming back, but he is not back yet. The time will come, Jesus says, when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. And the bridegroom is just another way to say uh, Jesus himself, who's often pictured as the husband of the bride of Christ. Jesus then goes right into a teaching about the old and the new in Luke 5, 36 to 39. He says this, He told them then this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new one will not match the old. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say, the old is better. In this crowd where pretty much everyone in society is represented, from the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, to the over overhearing people in the banquet who are listening in on the conversation, the tax collectors, the sinners, uh, Jesus gives this teaching, saying, you know, it's, it's a foolish thing to tear a piece of fabric from a brand new garment and sew it into an old garment that has been washed and dried, because when you wash and dry that garment, the patch will rip off of it, they'll have a ruined new garment, and a still broken old garment. He says the same thing with the wine. He says, the new wine uh, must be poured into a animal skin that is not hardened through previous use. If you put new wine into an animal skin that's been used to carry wine before, when the wine expands and the gases are released, it will pop that old wine skin. And you'll be left with nothing but spilled wine on the floor, destroyed wine, and a destroyed wine skin. So instead, when you make wine, just as you do when you patch a hole in some clothing, you have a new wine skin, and you put the new wine in the new wine skin, and both of them grow together. If you looked around when Jesus shared this teaching, you would have seen the sinners, the tax collectors, the Pharisees, the Jews, the teachers of the law, all listening in, even the disciples of John. And Jesus' help had finally come to all of these people. And in the teaching of Jesus and the person of Jesus, he is describing himself as the new wine. And what he's saying to all of these people is, this new wine that I'm pouring out on you will not fit 
in the life that you are living. You pour the new wine into people that are not seeking God, they're not repenting of their sin, um, that continue worshiping in their temples and doing the things as they used to before Jesus came along, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. That, the person's life has to grow with the wine that Jesus is pouring into them. The, the word of God is like wine fermenting in a person. You hear the word, it grows inside you, and you grow with it. You have to grow with it. If you don't grow with it, you pop. And then you're not a Christian anymore. You, know, you just, you haven't engaged. You just pop. That's what happens. So if you pour, if you pour into the sinners and they don't repent of their sin for the, for the new wine, it'll pop. If you pour into the Pharisees, teachers of the law, Sadducees, with all of their established religions and customs and, quite frankly, condescensions towards everyone else around them, they're going to pop. Now, why are they going to pop? Because they aren't actually being obedient to Jesus' word either. Even though they think they are, they're not. Jesus makes it very clear. Um, he said to his disciples in Matthew 23, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Respect what they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, bird, heavy cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do, they do is done for people to see. So to not practice what you preach is like pouring Jesus' new wine of kingdom teaching into an old wineskin of religiosity that's, that's very comfortable for you. And when that wine starts to expand in you, it's going to pop you because you are a rigid religious person who's set in your ways, right? Jesus is saying uh, the word of God is going to come to everybody. The only the people that change with the word of God in them are going to be able to be sustained disciples of his. Because if you're not flexible enough to change in response to the word of God, in response to the new wine, eventually you're just going to pop and leak everywhere, and everything's going to be lost. And the wineskin will be ruined. Jesus' focus in this parable is to fix your eyes on the new wine of the kingdom that he's pouring out. It says, in, again, in, in, uh, in Matthew 6, not to worry about things that the world worries about, but to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be taken care of. When your eyes are fixed on the anxieties of life and the things, worrying about everything, um, and not on the new wine Jesus is pouring in you, the wine will, you know, the wine can pop you. You have to stay flexible with, with Jesus and grow in Christ and put into practice the things you hear. I love Ephesians 4.28 is, is one of those passages that talks about changing the wineskin so that when the wine is poured into it, it isn't destroyed. It says, Any Christian who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. You see, it's one thing to, to hear a commandment like, do not steal, do not covet. These are the big Ten Commandment kind of commandments, big important ones. Um, but if you continue to walk in these things, as Jesus is pouring in the new wine, it's not going to be, you're not going to be a good, good container for that wine. You're going you're gonna to leak at, at best. So someone like Levi, who Jesus is having this banquet with, who have heard this, this command in this parable. He was a tax collector. And uh, what, what would the new wine that Jesus is pouring into Levi look like for him? It would look like paying back the people that he had stolen from. 
Um, Religiously sick people must likewise receive Jesus' new wine by allowing Jesus to stretch them beyond their theological commitments they had and to include the things he is now teaching about his kingdom. Jesus affirms that the things the Pharisees are teaching is good. Giving is good. Fasting is good. Worship services are good. But if Jesus' new wine cannot be contained in your religious practice, then your religious practices must change to make room for Jesus' teaching. To not practice what you preach is like pouring Jesus' new wine of the kingdom into an old wineskin of religiosity. Or sin. Now, outward it might sound and look fine. The Pharisees apparently did what they did for people to see them and to say what a good job they're doing. Um, But inwardly, if the structures do not budge, the new wine of Christ will eventually, it will not be able to take root in a person's life unless they will grow with um, the wine. And Jesus offers a warning at the end of his parable. He says, No one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. This is a huge problem with commitments that we have either to sin or to our religious traditions that when Jesus pours new wine into our lives of his kingdom, um, we, we have a taste of it, but we say, I don't, I don't think I'm going to like this as much as the other stuff. And we go back to the old wine. We say, that was, that was better. And you can really miss out when you take your eyes off Jesus. Um, but, you know, let the wine bust through those theological boxes, the systems, anything extra to Christ that you might grow with God. You know, this parable is definitely not about creating new old wineskins, not about structures or institutions, um, but about people who are willing to receive the teaching about what God is now doing in his kingdom. I, I, read, I read a quote that I thought was really remarkable in the study Bible. The most important thing is, as people listen to this teaching, that we enact the traditions we have received with flexibility, compassion, and grace. It was this that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law lacked. Flexibility, compassion, and grace. That's a good word. As we listen to Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, we enact the traditions we have received with flexibility, compassion, and grace. So in this new year, what new wine is God trying to pour into your life? And are you flexible enough to grow with what God is putting into you in order to receive it? What things are you tempted to hold on to with a vice grip from your past, whether it be sin or, or some kind of religious or theological commitments you have or just certain opinions you hold that you feel are incompatible with Christ? Now, what things are you willing to loosen up on and let Jesus do a new work in your life in the coming year? How will we make room to receive the new wine from Jesus and remain flexible? As we come to the table of the Lord, we're going to close with with communion today and prayer. As we come to the table, I want you to think about those groups of people and how they would have heard Jesus' teaching about what kind of wineskin you are, what kind of wineskin you want to be. Um, Jesus will meet you if you make moves towards him in the coming year. It says, draw near to me, I will draw near to you. That's what Jesus says. Draw near to me, I will draw near to you. It's not complicated, but it does take some thought. How will I receive the new wine of the kingdom in my life this new year? We agree with what we sang earlier. God, you are welcome to move among us in this church, to speak through us, speak to us. My prayer for my brothers and sisters in Christ is that in this new year, they would connect with you in a new way, going upward in their relationship with you. 
that they would allow you to do the inward work, growing their wineskin and filling them up and changing them inwardly, that we might go outward and serve each other and your community in Jesus' name, sharing the good news with everybody we meet. For we know the message of Christ is not just for us. In fact, it's for everybody. That when Jesus looks at us, he does not see the healthy and the sick. He sees only people in need of him, a doctor and his patients. Um, We thank you for your resolve to save us, God, that you determined before the foundations of the earth that you would do upcoming in Advent of showing us how to live and dying on the cross, a perfect sacrifice, perfectly fulfilling the law of God that we might have a relationship with you. Now we, may we grow and expand as we receive the new wine that you pour into us. May your spirit find a home in us, not just a small space, but a large space to fill, to, to, to inhabit us, God. And we might have your mind in us, as your word says. We might be able to discern your voice and your leadership where things are unclear, as your word says. You would rule and reign in our hearts. You'd speak to us and guide us and fill us and change us in the coming year. I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. As we leave, just consider, consider carefully what God's calling you to do in the coming year as far as the fast goes. There's a guide on the Welcome Center with some ideas for fasting and ways to do it. But I just encourage you to, to get off the ground with that in the next couple days and seek the Lord, keeping you soft, filling you with his new things in the new year. You are dispersed to go and be the church. God bless.